Okay, Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke 23, John 19. Those are all the parallel passages that we've been using for several weeks now. Uh, talking about the things that happened on the day of Jesus' crucifixion. You remember it was Friday, uh, the sixth Jewish day of the uh, week. It's the 14th day of the first Jewish month, which is Passover day. That's the day on which Passover lambs are uh, killed and cooked and eaten. Uh, for Jesus and his apostles, their tradition apparently started uh, the night before, Thursday night, because that's the first day or the uh, sixth day of the week as well. It's the 14th day of the month. And so they cooked and uh, they butchered and cooked and ate their Passover dinner the night before. Uh, but when Friday came, he became the Passover lamb. Remember, we've been talking about that. And uh, we know that a lot of the local Jewish people from Jerusalem, Judea area, they were planning on having their Passover lamb cooked in the afternoon, and then they would start eating it once the sun went down. Uh, so that's two different traditions happening at the same time. But that allowed Jesus to both be the Passover lamb and to have Passover dinner all on the same Jewish day. Uh, we are now starting to focus all of our attention on the afternoon of the 14th. If you want to know about it on our calendar, I believe that the crucifixion of Jesus took place on the 3rd of April, 33. Uh, and so what we know about that date is that uh, when the sun goes down on this particular day, the moon will rise on the opposite horizon in eclipse. Now, that's kind of weird. That doesn't happen very often. Uh, but uh, I think it just kind of goes along with the whole strangeness of the day uh, that things are happening. Because the sun went dark for an entire uh, three hours as well. Okay, so what we've done so far is talk about um, how they took Jesus' body off the cross. Now, this is, I'm going to do a real quick reminder of this. This is the location I think is the more likely location for uh, Golgotha. Uh, and this picture was taken back in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And the reason I use it is because there's no buildings here. It's so much easier to see the terrain. Uh, and so you can see the two eyes of Golgotha cliffside. Uh, it's not on a hill far away, you know, that sort of thing. The cross was not up on the top. The cross was down in front of where uh, the skull face was located. One of those eyes has now caved in, so you can't see it as easily. But you can locate it very easily because of the big cave. You see the little cave there off to the left. And so you know exactly where the eye sockets are uh, once you take your bearing from that. Uh, I want you to pay attention. See that little wall right there on the side? Uh, near the cave. Uh, I'm going to talk about that wall being the dividing line uh, of, the, um, of the garden tomb project. 
and that's the viewing platform area now. All right, so this is an overhead from Google. I showed this last week, but I decided to modify some things on it. Uh, you can see all the little, little bitty tiny things up in the north and uh, west side of this picture. Uh, that's the um, cemetery that's up on top of that hill. That's a Muslim cemetery. Um, this is the perimeter of the garden tomb project. Uh, this is where they bought the area where the garden tomb was located, is located. Uh, and uh, see that little bitty push off to the right, just a little leg there? Uh, that's following the contour of the cliffside uh, right up to the edge where that wall was. That little straight up and down on the right-hand side, that's that wall area. And so they now have a viewing platform where you can see what remains of the Golgotha skull face uh, from that viewing platform. Uh, and then the garden tomb itself is up in the north wall of that same area. So in my estimation, oh, first of all, that, this is that road that you saw in that old picture. It, the new roads follow a different route. Uh, that was where the old road used to be. Uh, and uh, right here is where I put those crosses, right in the middle of the bus depot parking area. And then right there where the green X is, that's where the garden tomb is. And you can walk from the edge of the garden tomb area where the viewing platform is over to the garden tomb in just a few moments. Uh, it's only like 250 feet, I think, something like that. Uh, so uh, everything about this matches much better, I think, uh, the authentic location of uh, the garden story that we're about to jump in on it. So if you, back on our picture here, if you can imagine going left off the picture, just around the corner, you can see the cliff edge just keeps going around. Just around the corner, just out of frame, is where they discovered that garden tomb. And so this is what it looks like. Uh, the tomb door is kind of in shadow in this picture. And see that wall up above? That's the retaining wall and the wall uh, around the cemetery. Again, that's just more of it up above there. Uh, this is a long shot of it, uh, which I wanted you to see because down in the little pit where the, uh, where the railing is around, that's where this is, a first century catch basin, basin for uh, processing probably olive oil. Uh, is what they were probably doing. So th this was a garden, which was nice and pretty, but it was also a working garden where they processed olive oil. Uh, this is the opening to it. You see where the potted plants are and where the wooden steps go up. There's a little um, 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 gutter, I guess is the best way to describe it, in front of that, and that's where the rolling stone uh, would have gone, and then it would have kind of dropped into a little divot in front of the door to lock it in. Uh, so you go in, and now they have anti-tourist devices up, 
<laughs> because people through the centuries have been grabbing things out of here. But if you uh, look through the little bars, uh, you have to picture to the left uh, this being like a boxed up area where a lid would have been on top of it, stone lid. And the decaying body would have been put inside that little box area with the lid over it and left there for a year. And then they would have opened it back up again and uh, pulled out the uh, wrappings and opened them up all in a prayerful, respectful way, uh, collected the bones, cleaned them up the rest of the way, put them in a little bone box called a um, uh, ossuary, and they'd have it decorated up and everything with the name of the person, and then they'd put it in a little alcove on the wall. That's the way these tombs worked in the first century. Uh, the area to the right in the picture is actually the standing area between two of these prep and uh, um, tomb box areas so that you could have two tombs going at the same time, two uh, uh, areas where the, um, um, the body was decaying over the year. Uh, the body of Jesus would have been laid on the top of one of these areas. Yeah? Well, yeah. In the past, this property was owned by, uh, I think it was an Orthodox church. And then they sold it to a private group, which is much more uh, focused on trying to keep it preserved appropriately uh, as a site uh, for thoughtful contemplation of the sacrifice of Jesus. Uh, they do not have an entry fee, but they do have a recommended donation for you to make. And then they have a donation box as well at the, at the end of it. Uh, and so their whole goal is to just make sure that Christians, when they come, have a place where they can come and view this tomb and view Golgotha from the viewing platform. Yeah. Yes, when, they, when we were there, they were giving out little Gospels of John. And when you go through the exit area, of course, there is a gift shop. There is. I mean, that has to be. I mean, honestly, pilgrims have been buying souvenirs since pilgrims started, right? Yeah, and so you can get all sorts of, um, you can get goofy, stupid things, but the things I really like the best at that little gift shop is they have a whole bunch of olive wood things um, that you can buy and take home, and they're all made in country, and so that's very nice. And, and it's, not a, it's not for profit. I mean, the profits go back into keeping the place open, so I appreciate that a lot. Uh, but I want you to just kind of imagine now, uh, when we're reading the text, which, let's go ahead and read the one in John 19 again, where it says, uh, 1938, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. Pilate granted permission. So he came, he took away his body, 
Nicodemus, who had uh, first come to him by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, that's bark and tree uh, uh, wood from an aloe tree. It's not aloes like we think of, okay? Uh, and uh, that's about 100 pounds weight, which in Roman weight system, that's about 75 pounds. And so what did they do? They took the body of Jesus, they bound it in linen wrappings with the spices. Now this, was a, this can be very confusing if you don't think uh, in first century terms. The other gospels talked about there being one cloth that they wrapped Jesus in. This one mentions multiple. Uh, and so this is the way it worked. Uh, and I'm going to move over here. So if you can imagine that this is the preparation platform right here. Uh, and the tomb that he's going to be laid in would be down below, empty, because this has never been used. This tomb is brand new, been recently carved out, and you can't really tell it as easily with the plaster area above, but you can see down below it looks like it's been chiseled at, right? Uh, so the idea is they brought his body in, they would have had a brand new long piece of linen already laying flat on the top here. Uh, and the end of it, because it's super long, is kind of off the end. If, if you're looking here, that's toward us. That's where the tail of it would be waiting. Then they laid Jesus' body onto this cloth. And his body would have already started having rigor mortis, uh, and they don't have time to wash his body like they'd want to, because they've got to finish everything and get the door closed before the sun drops below the horizon. And they probably didn't get the body released to them until two hours before sunset. So they've got to be quick about this. Uh, so they put the body as it is, on there, and then they dump all of that aloe and myrrh all along the edges. And then they take the tail, and they take it up and over the top, and then they start taking it. They now, okay, forgive the language, but it's the best way I can describe it. They've now basically made like a sandwich out of one piece of bread, right? A very long piece of bread. So they brought it up and over, but now they want to seal it up, at least until Sunday morning, because that's when they're going to come back, open it back up, and wash the body, and anoint the body properly, probably position the body better, and then wrap it up in another piece of cloth, uh, and place it underneath the lid down into the tomb itself, where it was going to be left for a year. That would be the normal procedure. So they basically fold the edges up and over the sides. So you can picture that in your mind, right? So Jesus' body is making contact on the back side and on the front side with the actual cloth. But folds have now been brought up over the top, and then they've cut off the edges here, some strips that they're going to use 
to wrap around underneath the body in a certain way to keep those folds and things in place. Make sure that nothing moves until they can get back on Monday. Uh, and uh, all of that was just a temporary fix for their problem of time. They can't do the proper burial. So they've just got to give it a lick and a promise and then move on. Uh, and uh, verse 41 of the John passage said, now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. See? And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had been laid. And we know from the other passages, this is Joseph's tomb. Uh, he had had it commissioned. Uh, and you might ask, well, why did he have it so close to a crucifixion site? It's also close to a whole bunch of other tombs. This is a tomb area uh, in, uh, in, north, uh, in the north side of Jerusalem. In fact, about, let me really quick estimate my head here, about 500 to 1,000 feet north of here is the tomb of a queen. So this is all a tomb region. That's why there's a cemetery up on the top of that hill now, is because it was just, that was the way it was. No, no, no. You're thinking about, you're thinking about uh, how Judas ends up being buried in the potter's field on the south side of town. No, no. Uh, yeah, that's a whole different story. That would be the poor people's tomb area. Bec they turned that into a cemetery because it had no other purpose anymore. Because once blood had, and other things, had spilled all over the ground at the clay quarry, it couldn't be used anymore. So they just sold it as a burial spot for poor people. Which is why, still today, Potter's Field is a reference to a place where they buried John and Jane Doe's. Okay? Uh, now, uh, verse 42 tells us, Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. So Joseph volunteered his tomb sometime during the day. He talked with Mary and John uh, and said, do you have arrangements made? You know, something like this. Do you have arrangements made? No, we don't know what's going to happen. Let's do this. Let's take his body off the tomb. I will help with that. And we will get him laid into my tomb, which is just a few hundred feet that way. That's what we'll do. And then we'll, we'll go from there. Okay? And, and they agreed. And so that's how Jesus ends up in a borrowed tomb of a rich person, which was predicted in uh, Isaiah chapter 53, I think, uh, or maybe it was Psalm 22, but one of them talks about in his death he was with the wealthy. Okay? And, but it also mentions him being with the thugs in his death. So he ends up being both with the wealthy and the thugs all at the same time in his dying. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, once, it's, it, once it starts being used, it is perpetually used. Yeah. 
Yep, that's a, this was something that happened for about a 100-year period, starting in the very latest part of the first century BC, and then all the way up until Jews were no longer allowed in the area because of the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, uh, and then the whole rebellion in 130. Um, they did this procedure of letting the bodies decay over a year and then taking the bones and putting them in a bone box, an ossuary. Um, it, it's, it was just their procedure. All right, so uh, that's, that's the sort of things that I want you to picture. Uh, and this tomb, of course, uh, we took some tourist shots, obviously. There's Dan and Mary again. Showed you last week. Uh, this, this is not the stone, okay? Who, wherever the stone went, what's happened is the Garden Tomb Association uh, went out and either found one that was authentic or they had it commissioned. I don't remember which it is. But they put this uh, over not very far from the tomb opening so that you can imagine how big of a stone was going to be needed to lock shut the door to that tomb. Um, and it's massive enough that it takes quite a few guys with muscles to maneuver it back out of place. Uh, even though it's supposed to be able to roll and all of that, it still takes a bit to get it out of the locking divot. And so that becomes part of the story later. Uh, so they roll the stone into place. And we are told that it is day of preparation, which was the Jewish term for Friday. Friday. So Thursday night into Friday. Uh, and what are they preparing for? They're preparing for the Sabbath. Uh, Roman law had been in place ever since the time of, I think, Julius Caesar that Jewish people could not be required to do anything on the afternoon of Friday. They could not be taken to court. They could not be uh, made to uh, testify or do any jobs or anything like that. Because from about mid-afternoon, that is when the sun was like at a 45 degree angle from, from sunset, right? From that time until the sun went down, they were supposed to be heading home and making sure everything was ready for their Sabbath rest. And so uh, that's why Jewish preparation is really important to understand here, uh, that they're getting ready to head off for that. Now, uh, in Luke's account, uh, Luke twenty-two fifty-four. It was the preparation day. There it is and said again. Now, now, you guys probably don't understand why I emphasize that so much. There are people out there that try to say that Jesus was crucified on Wednesday. There are others that say he was crucified on Thursday. They've got this big burr under their saddle about Good Friday. They don't like it. They won't accept it. And so they come up with all these other excuses as to it happened on a different day of the week. But I'm telling you that the normal, the normal reading of the text, normal understanding of the language of that day is very clear here. It was Friday. 
Yes. Yes. Yeah, well, the reason they, these guys say all this stuff is they say this is a special Sabbath that's coming up. Right, they count the first day of unleavened bread as a Sabbath day, and ultimately it boils down to this. Jesus at one time said, uh, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea creature, so too shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the, in the heart of the earth. And they go, that means Jesus has to be in the grave 72 hours. Exactly 72 hours, no more, no less. And they got problems with that, not the least of which are all these things here, because it's very clear from the text. He was resurrected by, Saturday, or by some Sunday morning, and he was definitely buried on Preparation Day, which is Friday. Even today, in Greek, in the Greece uh, writings of newspapers, Friday is the same word they use here. Okay? Uh, so they, they are basically casting around to fulfill some idea that they got in their head, typically because they did not understand Jewish culture. For example, uh, and idiom. All of us understand idioms, right? If I told you, man, I was sick, puking all weekend. Did you, would you believe that I meant that literally? You wouldn't, would you? So what was the point? I was just trying to tell you I was sick a long time this weekend, right? Uh, if somebody told you, I'm going to go and spend the entire weekend with my friends. Does that mean that they were with their friends from midnight on Friday until midnight on Sunday? Because that's the technical weekend. You see the problem here? People sometimes get a little crazy when they're reading this language when they seem to know how to handle the same sorts of things in their own language. They're called idioms. I've told people this a billion times, and they still don't understand it, right? You don't believe I did that, right? Not literally. But you know exactly what I meant, correct? Uh, so that's the problem here, is that they are, for the sake of an idiom, they throw out clear-cut other evidence. And it's just goofy. And so that's why I emphasize it a lot. Um, I, I did my paper, my, the, my master's thesis on this, and I even go to the Old Testament and show them that there is a place in the Old Testament where this exact same idiom was used, where somebody was said that they had been without food and drink for three days and three nights. And when you look at the chronological text of the event, it was part of three days, guaranteed. Lazarus was dead for four days. So he died on one day, and Jesus resurrected him on the fourth day from there. So it wasn't, what is it? Uh, it wasn't uh, 96 hours, okay? But it was part of those four days that he was dead. 
which is still, that's a long time. After all, his sister said, when Jesus said, open the door, roll the stone away, remember? They, she said, Master, he's been dead four days. Certainly by now he stinks, right? Remember that? But on your command, we'll, we'll open it. And so they did. And then Lazarus, who had been more appropriately entombed, so he's had his burial bath, and he's been wrap, wound up in pretty much the same thing, but in nice, clean wrappings. That means that he had to get off the little preparation thing and then do this number out of the tomb, which I, we already did this several months ago. You know people were screaming and running away, and a few people were probably fainting uh, after that happened. Because the first thing Jesus says is what? Unwrap him and let him go. Right? So that will help you here with this, our imagination as to what Jesus' uh, tomb would have looked like. So he's on the top of the preparation area. He's wrapped up in a little cocoon uh, with some really good smelling things. Uh, and then they roll the stone in place. And uh, then... In uh, Luke 23, verse 55, the women who had come with him out of Galilee, Luke doesn't name them here, uh, followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid, and then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes. So they took note of exactly where the garden tomb was at, made sure everything looked good for the night, and then they had just enough time for them to go back to where they were staying and start preparing the beginnings of Sunday morning's preparations. Uh, but as soon as the sun went down, it says, on the Sabbath they rested according to the commandments. So as soon as the sun went down, they stopped what they were doing and did their Sabbath stuff, which might have included going to the synagogue that night, uh, certainly would have included going to the synagogue the next morning at some point, uh, but they're not going to eat. Um, Jesus had kind of predicted this. Uh, the Jewish people were in the habit, as Pharisees, they would skip two days of food during daylight hours each week. And when uh, uh, they were getting after Jesus' apostles for not following that same sort of procedure, Jesus responded, how can they fast when the bridegroom is with them. There will come a time when they fast, but that's not now. Uh, so they probably didn't eat anything for the next uh, couple of days because they were so upset. Did I see a hand about anything? Okay. So we don't have the names here, but if you will, uh, Luke 8 is where he actually names these ladies. So we'll go there real fast. Luke chapter 8, verse 2. Uh, the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. So that tells us why they're hanging out with him. Mary, who was called Magdalene, uh, so she's from the town of Magdala, up in Galilee, uh, from whom seven demons had gone out. So she'd been in the occult pretty bad, and so Jesus got her out of that. Joanna, the wife of Husa, Herod's steward, 
I think that is probably uh, the mom and dad of uh, the um, of the boy that was resurrected by Jesus from a distance. He was in Nazareth, and he got a message from Capernaum. The dad actually showed up, and uh, he says he, he's better. Uh, and the reason I think that is because that man is described as being a kingly man, as in a royal official belonging to uh, Herod's household, apparently. Uh, and then S Susanna, which we know nothing about other than here, and then many others who were contributing to their uh, uh, contributing to their support out of their private means. So these ladies, several of them apparently were pretty well to do and then had become followers of Jesus. So now they're all in Jerusalem at the garden tomb making sure that they know everything has been done appropriately up to this point so that they can go back to where they're staying, do Sabbath day, and then they will come back on uh, Monday morning, excuse me, Sunday morning to finish the funeral. So is everybody, uh, is there anybody in this group that's expecting a resurrection? There's not, is there? None of them. All of them seem to believe that they'll be coming back Sunday morning early to finish the funeral. That's it. Uh, the Matthew account. Matthew 27. Actually, let's save that one until the end. Uh, Mark 15. Mark 15, 46, uh, talks about uh, Joseph bringing the linen cloth, took him down, wrapped him in the linen cloth, laid him in the tomb, which had been hewn out of the rock. He rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jose's, that's Jose to us, but it's Yosis, which is a shortened form of Joseph. So this is Joseph Jr. that's being referenced here. Uh, we know that this Mary is actually Mary, the mother of Jesus. Yeah. Because they were there before the rock went into place. They have been there uh, from the cross to the tomb, helping with all the preparations. They've been monitoring everything, assisting in everything that they can. All right? A few of them may have actually been, you know, helping with the folds or helping, you know, get the uh, straps underneath. Somebody had to snip it off the edge, the long edge. They may have helped with that and maybe stitch things back up to make sure they didn't unravel. Uh, it's interesting, the, trout, the Shroud of Turin, which I've showed you pictures of that I'm very intrigued by, it actually has a long strip that's been re-sewed onto the side of it that was part of the original cloth that had been snipped off, apparently used to wrap up the body, and then once everything was done, they sewed that strip back on the edge of the cloth. Now, why would they do that? They normally wouldn't. Yeah, we're not sure which part is going to be seen on Sunday morning. There's uh, something said about some cloth that's been rolled up by itself. And uh, some people think it might have been a chin strap to keep the 
mouth shut because muscles relax after death. And so that's a possibility. Uh, another possibility, this is a really big one a lot of people like to use, is that instead of closing the mouth and keeping it shut, they would just simply put a cloth on top of the face the whole time. Modern Jewish people still do that. But we don't know how far back that tradition goes. And they just leave it in place when the body is buried. So that would be the big weirdness is either one of those, what's that doing outside of the cocoon? Because the cocoon was not open. It wasn't like pulled back. It was still exactly like it looked, except it's just collapsed. There's nothing in there. Now, some people thought it may be the thing that wraps around the edges. I don't think so. I think those were probably still in place as another indicator that it hadn't been opened up. The cocoon was just emptied miraculously. So, yes. Yep. That that does seem to be the case. Yes. And we'll talk a little bit more about that next week because then we're gonna we're gonna start talking about the resurrection next week, and uh, I I feel like we need to talk about the shroud a little bit again, just because it's such a freaky thing. They did not. Yeah, they seem to be totally confused about this whole resurrection thing. Just like they were totally confused about the death thing. They didn't think that was going to happen, but it did. And now they're really confused because they're burying him permanently on, on Sunday morning. That's their plan. Yep. Because this is Mark's writing uh, 30 years later. It's, Mark probably didn't meet Jesus in person. And many of the people he's writing to probably never met Jesus in person. But probably quite a few of them had met Joseph Jr. Yeah, I'd be Mary Magdalene, but she is totally, oh, excuse me, um, uh, Mary of, of, uh, of uh, Bethany. She's not mentioned here. She doesn't seem to be here in this group. She's at home. Oh, Mary the mother? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, from a mother's point of view, true. It's, it's confusing, isn't it, as to how Mary did not click with the idea of the resurrection until it actually happened as well. Uh, but uh, the reason I went to Mary Bethany is because she's the only one that Jesus says took him serious about dying. <laughs> Remember, because she anointed him, and he said, she's anointed me for my burial. But he also said, let her keep that stuff. Let her keep the... Uh, 
anointing things because they were wanting to try to grab them and sell them. And she probably used what was left of it, or somebody who used what was left of it for Jesus. Uh, so um, the point, going back to Matthew now, Matthew 27, 60. Uh, they laid him in his own new tomb. That'd be Joseph's tomb, Joseph of Arimathea, which had been hewn out of the rock. He rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary, that'd be Mary, mother of Jesus, sitting opposite the grave. So they were sitting there watching as the stone was rolled in place. Now, do you think any of them would be confused as exactly where he was buried? No. There is no way in the world that, you know, 36 or so hours later, they wouldn't be able to walk right back to this same spot. Now, the reason I emphasize that is because there's an idiots out there that say that the ladies on Sunday morning were confused and went to the wrong tomb. No, they didn't. What, why are you even suggesting that? It's insane. I'm like, do you think people are idiots? You know, within a few moments, I can walk to the graves of my family members in the cemetery with no problem, even having not been there for years. Of course you know where special people are buried, especially if it only happened a few hours back. Yeah, Mary, Mary certainly would know exactly where her son is buried. So let's have enough of this stupidity of suggesting the women were confused a few hours later and went to the wrong tomb. Besides which, how do you fix that? How would you fix that? Well, I, I was actually going to be a little bit more mean, and that'd be like the gardener going, what do you, no, this is not where, it, over here, let me take you over where really what happened, right? No, women still ask for directions. That, that's true. Women do ask for directions. Um, so, this is where we'll wrap up and start next week. Uh, verse uh, 63. So, the tomb is closed. We have now moved to the 15th day of the Jewish month. So, that means Friday night and then into Saturday. And so the, uh, the priests, uh, on the next day, the day after preparation, that is the Sabbath day, the, that'd be Saturday for us, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate, and they said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days I'm going to rise again. Well, they at least got the memo, right? Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day, meaning until the full three days have passed. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, he's risen from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. So these guys actually go to Pilate and say, you need to put a watch on the tomb to make sure that those disciples don't come and swipe the body and then claim the resurrection happened. They weren't going to do that, but uh, that, that's what these guys are thinking. And so Pilate said, you have your guard, go, make it as secure as you know. 
Uh, and so they went and they made the grave secure. Along with the guard, they set a seal on the tomb or on the stone. So they basically, this is where we'll start next week. So you can ask any questions about this. Some unit of soldiers, Roman soldiers, are dispatched to go with the priests out to the tomb, verify that the body is there. They wouldn't have skipped that step. So they would have opened it, checked, yep, body is present. Rolled the stone back in place, and then they would have put probably a chain or something across it, and then they would have used molten lead, or clay maybe, but more likely molten lead, to uh, seal both ends of the chain across here as a tamper-proof uh, evidence to make sure that nobody is opening it. Uh, and then they would have posted a guard, which means since they're going to be there more than a couple of days, you're going to have probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 16 guards. And so you've got guards on duty, actively watching, guards sleeping, and you've got guards just kind of loitering around, just hanging out. Maybe they'll go and do a quick run into town, but then they're going to come back, and they're going to be awake playing cards or dice or whatever it is. Okay? So that's what's going to be going on. Uh, and that means there is absolutely no way in the world anybody stole that body. None. Anybody want to tackle 16 uh, armed Roman soldiers to steal a body? No. Well, that's where we'll pick up next week. Father, thank you for all of the clear testimony and evidence that Jesus did die for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was resurrected on the third day according to the scriptures. Thank you, Father, for all of the eyewitnesses who made sure their testimonies were down so that we, many, many centuries later, could believe them and be saved and know one of these days we are going to meet Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. It's in his name we ask for a good worship service now.